This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The massive Volkswagen settlements won't just benefit car owners and dealers. States are getting a chunk of change, too, to pay for clean energy projects. So what does Colorado stand to gain? Chris Kalklesher is acting director of the state's Air Pollution Control Division. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And a reminder that VW was a top seller of diesel vehicles in the U.S. with around 70 percent of that market. And then in 2015, the company was found to have cheated emissions testing on around 10 and a half million cars worldwide. Now comes this nationwide settlement. How much is Colorado receiving? Colorado is going to get about $68 million through an environmental mitigation trust fund. $68 million. All right. And uh, do we know how many VW vehicles were affected in Colorado by this cheating scandal? In Colorado, we had about 9,300, which is a large number. Statewide, there are about 3 million vehicles. So it's a small percentage of the statewide fleet. Okay. And was the money doled out to states based on how many diesel vehicles were registered in those states? Yes, that's right. Okay. So that explains Colorado's portion of the money. Uh, These funds must be used for certain types of projects, like those that reduce greenhouse gas emissions or benefit the expansion of electric vehicles, for example. Last fall, the State Department of Public Health held meetings for public comment to discuss potential Colorado projects. What are some of the projects your department hopes to fund? We heard a lot from people around the state that had a lot of good suggestions about projects we should fund. Uh, You mentioned electric electric vehicles. And that was one of the top comments that we heard. People are strongly supportive of having the state spend up to 15% of the money we receive on electric vehicle or even hydrogen fuel cell vehicle infrastructure. Infrastructure. What does that mean? That means charging stations, uh, vehicle charging stations or fueling stations for hydrogen. But it's infrastructure for zero emission vehicles. Okay. I know there was an announcement recently from our governor and some other Western governors about building out that kind of infrastructure, particularly along arteries like I-70, I-25, is that going hand-in-hand with the VW money? It's related, but it's a separate project. So Governor Hickenlooper did agree with Utah and Nevada to establish an electric vehicle corridor. VW money could be used to fund that, or that money could come from other places as well. Okay. What else could this money be spent on? So we have a menu of options from the trust, uh, a list of eligible actions. The largest ones are replacing or repowering trucks and buses. And these are medium or heavy-duty trucks and buses, not passenger cars. Okay. And what would that mean practically? So it means that an old, higher-emitting vehicle comes off the road, and that vehicle actually has to be scrapped. They have to cut the chassis in half, or they take the engine out and drill a three-inch hole through the old engine so that it can't be used again, and then put a new engine that burns cleaner. Okay. And whose buses and trucks? Uh, Those operated by public entities or what? They could be public or they could be private. It really doesn't matter as long as the vehicle is heavy enough, uh, the right weight class and the right year, uh, the right model year to be eligible. Is this a bit like the Cash for Clunkers program of some years ago? There are some parallels. We really don't compare it to that. But yes, the, the general idea is to take older, higher polluting vehicles off the road. Some that could be privately owned or individually owned, you were saying? Yes, they can. Okay. And that will obviously take some months, maybe years, to implement a program like that. We have between three and ten years to spend the money. Okay. Uh, What other ways might the money be spent? Uh, The the money can be spent on upgrading equipment at airports. So there are diesel engines used at airports to keep the airplanes warm during the winter or keep the lights on while you're boarding. Uh, Those engines could be upgraded so that they emit less. 
And there are a few other projects to retrofit older diesel engines or perhaps replace forklifts. Uh, but I expect that most of the money will be used for the, the three that we mentioned first, electric vehicle infrastructure and trucks and buses. Okay. So at the table, part of the discussion uh, was the University of Colorado Boulder, Excel Energy, DIA. You mentioned the connection potentially to the airport. Was there real tension among these parties about how the money should be spent? Or is there consensus? There was a fair amount of consensus about using the money on electric vehicle infrastructure. Beyond that, people are interested in receiving the money for their own industries. So we had representatives from the diesel industry, the natural gas industry, uh, and others who were there looking to receive a share of the money, as you could imagine. What oversight will there be that the money is being spent, one, properly, and two, that it's making a difference? One can say, we'll channel the money there, but who knows if it makes an environmental difference? So my office, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, will be overseeing it. We are the state lead agency. Um, What we will do is solicit applications for grants. And when we decide that a project fits the criteria and we want to move forward with that project, we'll have to submit it to a national trust. Uh, There's a trustee who's not been appointed yet, but the court will appoint a trustee. And that trustee needs to approve the project's and after the work is done, we'll submit reports every six months. We are speaking with Chris Kalkleischer. He's uh, acting director of the state's Air Pollution Control Division. And our focus is the fact that that massive VW settlement doesn't just benefit those who drive Volkswagens and the dealers who sell them, but the state as a whole. And when do you plan to release something definitive about where the money will go? Because I know that there have been negotiations until this point. So the timing is up in the air a little bit. We are waiting for the court to appoint a trustee, and that will give us more clarity on when we could expect to receive the money. Generally speaking, we hope to put out a beneficiary mitigation plan for public comment this spring, and that's a plan that would describe how the money would be spent. So we want to put that out for comment. We're hoping to actually receive funds by the end of this year. By the end of the year. All right. And the fundamental principle behind this is that the cheating scandal meant that Colorado's air was not as clean as it would have been if VW uh, had, I suppose, actually been following what it said it was doing, that the air was dirtier, and therefore that VW needs to make the air cleaner. That's the fundamental underpinning here. That's right. They sold cars that emitted more than they said they did. Uh, Will the recent election of President Trump, which, you know, has thrown a lot of things into question, affect the outcome of this process at all? It could. I won't try to predict what will come out of Washington, D.C., but there have been groups asking President Trump to try to renegotiate or change parts of the deal or essentially walk away from what's known as the National Zero Emission Vehicle Investment. So in addition to the money that Colorado receives, Volkswagen will spend $2 billion nationwide to invest in zero emission vehicle infrastructure and access. That is money that it has more control over. VW itself. Volkswagen controls where that money is spent. EPA has to approve the costs, but Volkswagen decides when and where to spend it. Okay. So the the federal government plays some role there, and the outcome of that could be affected. I do remember that after the Volkswagen scandal came to light, there were other manufacturers found to have been doing similar things. Will states benefit from settlements in those arenas with other dealers as well? 
There have been allegations against other manufacturers, and they are disputing that they violated the law. Uh, but it is possible that states could receive a benefit. And Colorado had a separate settlement with Volkswagen where the state received about $14 million that went into the general fund because of violations of state consumer protection law. That was separate from what we've been talking about here. That's separate. And were there ties, uh, strings attached to that money? That money can be spent by the legislature. It's in the general fund. General fund for anything. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Chris Kalkleischer is acting director of the state's Air Pollution Control Division. So what about individual VW drivers in Colorado hurt by the diesel emission scandal? Well, the settlement may mean cash, the ability to sell back the car, and, of course, fixing the emissions problem. Fred Emick is general manager of Emick Volkswagen in Denver. He says a common misunderstanding is that VW will contact every affected owner. If they bought this, you know, private party, secondary market, something like that, Volkswagen may not know that they are the the rightful owner of a TDI vehicle and may not have communicated to them. He adds there's a specific website owners must use, vwcourtsettlement.com, so people can't simply drive down to a dealership for help. Essentially, the dealers at this point are just providing a location to facilitate the buyback, and for the Generation 3 vehicles, the emissions modification. Emick adds that his own dealership has also gotten compensation but didn't offer a dollar amount. He says it's been a roller coaster ride. We were going to start repairing the vehicles by January of 2016 and kind of be through this thing by this point. As this thing dragged further and further along, I'll tell you the first half of 2016 was the the worst first half of a year that we've had, even worse than 2009. So we kind of fell upon some tough times. But then once there was an announcement that they'd reached an agreement you know, there was some sort of framework in terms of buyback, you know, modification, compensation, stuff like that. Then things improved for us. While consumers may be entitled to compensation, it may be a while before they get the money. Fred Emick, general manager of Emick VW in Denver, says finalizing paperwork, especially with loan companies and title holders, takes a lot of time. We'll be right back with the first real test of the state's new oil and gas rules meant to ease tensions between drillers and homeowners. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oil and gas companies that want to drill near neighborhoods in Colorado got a new set of rules to follow about this time last year. These rules say companies should exhaust all other locations where a drill rig could go and use best available technologies to cut down on noise, light, and odor. A community on the western slope is the first to test these rules. CPR's Rachel Estabrook went there to find out how things are going. Larry and Carol Foreman's view is something to marvel at. The first thing people do when they come in this house, if it's summer, is they come in that door and they head right out there like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Even on this snowy day, they can see towering cliffs and the Colorado River from the back porch. 
The Foremans live in Battlement Mesa, part of unincorporated Garfield County. Oil and gas operations have been in the area for more than half a century. Now they're coming close to the Foreman's house. We're hoping that's a big apple tree right there, and I just can't wait for it to get leafed out in the summer. It will block some of our view of that, but it is so close. It's just like right below us. Backhoes, bulldozers, and water storage tanks are lined up on a future well pad down the hill. Carol Foreman says the construction wakes her up at night. When you would stand in the hallway by our bedroom, it's such a low noise, you can almost feel it. It sounds like a big train going by, you know. When they bought their house a few years ago, the Foremans knew there could be drilling close by. Like other residents, they don't own the minerals underneath their house. But the Foremans didn't expect someone would put 52 wells on two pads in Battlement Mesa. Forty residents have filed complaints with the county over this. They worry about their property values, about air pollution, and their drinking water supply just a few hundred feet away. So why is this happening, given that the state has tried to get more local input in decisions about where to drill? Part of the answer is that input comes mostly from local governments. And Garfield County approved the sites for these well pads before the new rules went into effect. In fact, County Commissioner John Martin says the right to drill in Battlement Mesa has been in place since the 1980s. That has been there since the creation of the subdivision. It is on everyone's title. And uh, everyone should have read that title. The county has required the oil and gas company, Ursa Resources, to take a number of precautions to cut down on noise and dust and to monitor for leaks, for example. And Ursa holds frequent community meetings. It set up a 24-7 hotline for complaints. What the concerned residents really want, though, is for the county and the state to push the wells outside their community's boundaries. More than 450 residents of the 4,500 or so that live here signed a petition asking for the wells to be relocated. A noise wall in the middle of a neighborhood looks absurd. The only way to eliminate the impacts is to move the location entirely away from residential areas. Attorney Matt Sura represents the Battlement Concerned Citizens Group, and he was part of the state task force that led to the new rules for drilling near neighborhoods. He says new technology makes it possible for Ursa to drill from further away. And the state rules say large oil and gas facilities should be built as far as possible from homes. But from the state's point of view, the proposed location is far enough away. Matt Lepore is Colorado's top oil and gas regulator. He says Ursa looked at other further away locations and rejected them for good reasons. Ursa Vice President Don Simpson says the geology of the land makes it difficult to move the well pads and that doing so would leave a lot of gas on the ground. Certainly we would love to back up further away from the community and access our minerals. That would be awesome. But the mother nature has not allowed that. Economic feasibility is also part of the criteria for Lepore. Citizens disagree. I get that. You want the operator to spend more money to do something that's not required. The thing is, the pads are further than the minimum distance they have to be from homes. And that disappoints some residents and their attorney, Matt Sura. Unfortunately, we don't have the laws that require them not only to obey the law, but to use some common sense and to be reasonable to the neighbors. So those 52 wells will go forward. But a key part of Ursa's plan, an injection well down the hill from the foreman's home, still needs to be approved. It would take wastewater that comes up a well with the gas and shoot it back deep below ground. Ursa's Don Simpson will make the case that's the best place to put the well. It's less visible. 
It'll be less any kind of sound they might have from the pumps for the injection. So it's, it's really a good spot. Not if you ask attorney Matt Sura. The idea that you would locate that in a residential neighborhood, and in this case directly upstream from the community's water intake, is unconscionable. Staff for Garfield County and Colorado's Public Health Department have recommended moving the injection well. They're concerned about the risk for spills and drinking water contamination. Residents like the foremans hope this time regulators will see it their way and force Ursa to put the well somewhere else. The first county hearing on that is tonight. Then the process will start all over. Ursa plans to put more wells on more pads in Battlement Mesa. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. Now, there's also a test case for these year-old oil and gas rules on the front range, and we'll bring you that story tomorrow. So these rules came out of a task force set up by the governor, and that task force also recommended studying the potential health effects of living near well pads. It's a big concern, of course, for some residents. So the state's public health department will investigate, specifically as it relates to air quality. They'll rely on data collected recently by Colorado State University, says the state's chief environmental epidemiologist, Mike Van Dyke. These are the first two studies that have directly measured the emissions from multiple phases of oil and gas operations. I haven't come across any data like this in the world. Let's hear from the leader of the team that collected that data. Jeffrey Collett heads CSU's Atmospheric Science Department. His team studied air quality near oil and gas wells on the Front Range and in Garfield County on the West Slope. And Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Happy to be here. So we just heard that you looked at air quality at different phases of oil and gas operations. Why is that so important to understanding air quality? Well, we really wanted to understand what the emissions were from different types of operations. So, for example, during drilling or during hydraulic fracturing or fracking, as it's commonly referred, and flowback, as well as we looked also at production emissions. So, you know, a well might be drilled and go through the completions, the fracturing and flowback, you know, for a couple of weeks, and you might have several wells on a pad. But once they go to production, it might be 20 or 30 years of potential air emissions. And we wanted to characterize the emissions from each of those stages so we could understand ultimately potential exposure to those. What is flowback? I'm not familiar with that term. So flowback is the stage after the fracking. So when a well is fracked, um, typically uh, you have water and other materials put in to create the microfractures that allow the gas and the oil to come more efficiently out of the deposit. Flowback is simply the stage after that when that injected water as well as water produced by the well comes out. People might think of drilling as one thing. The point is it's actually a series of processes, and it's important to understand how each step might affect air quality. We asked uh, Mr. Van Dyke from Colorado's Public Health Department why it's taken so long to get this kind of data, which allows for the thorough health analysis that his department will undertake. Because this data is really hard to collect, it's really complicated, and it's expensive, So I think really the combination of somebody with the appropriate expertise to be able to take these samples, uh, somebody willing to pay for the data, and uh, somebody willing to go out and do the work is what we really needed to have. And we didn't have that before this particular study. Again, a study of air quality around these these drilling sites. Your data lasted, the, the gathering of it lasted several years, starting in 2013. 
And again, it's data that the public health department will use to look at health effects. Did you find um, higher concentrations, though, of chemicals that could impact human health? I mean, can you give me a sense of how much more concentrated those chemicals are around oil and gas operations at various points? Sure. We we were actually looking at a wide range of chemicals, about 50 different chemicals that could come out um, during these processes. And one thing that we did was to actually measure the emissions, the rate of which things came out of the operation, rather than just measuring concentrations, because the concentration depends a lot on which way the wind's blowing, how hard it's blowing. So mm, weather we, plays a role. Here, exactly. Yeah. Weather weather combined with emissions determine the concentrations that people breathe. Um, but some of the things that we looked at that are of interest from health include compounds like benzene, which is a carcinogen. And so we looked at emissions of benzene, for example, across these different processes. And then we simulated for a year's worth of weather what the average concentration of benzene would be around a hypothetical site um, at different distances in different directions. And what did you find? Again, you are not making rulings about health. That's for the public health department to do. But what did you find about those concentrations? That's right. So we found, um, for example, if we took a typical emission rate from a production site where you might have several wells uh, producing oil and gas, and we looked at the benzene coming out from that, and we simulated this concentration field across a year's worth of weather. And we found that uh, if you get within about three or 400 feet, the elevated concentrations might go up by about uh, a tenth of a part per billion. Um, and to give you some context, um, we've done some work recently in Fort Collins where we find typical benzene concentrations are about between one-tenth and maybe four-tenths of a part per billion. So this is about a, you know, a 5 to 100% concentration increase in benzene if you get very close to the well. If you move away from it, that concentration drops off quickly. And did you note that at all points or just at various stages of a, of a well? So this was um, taking the production emissions that we measured across 11 different production sites and then looking at how they would be dispersed in a year's worth of varying weather. Uh, of production. Of production, yes. So that, that's the long-term state, that's if you right. will, of a well. Okay. And we found that the, uh, the emissions are higher during some of the, the earlier stages, especially during this flowback stage that we talked about. That's when we saw typically the highest emissions of benzene and other compounds. They tapered somewhat off during production, but they remained higher during production overall. Yeah, there are emissions during production, but yep. they're much less than the emissions during, um, for example, flowback. Okay. Uh, your study on the front range was funded by the state public health department with funding committed by lawmakers, and you got additional funding from the city of Fort Collins. It passed a ban on fracking that the state Supreme Court struck down. Uh, one thing they were interested to see in your study was what would happen if you add more and more wells to a pad. And that's something that's happening more in Colorado. Uh, you can actually see a, a CPR analysis of that at CPRnews.org. What did you find happens when you add more wells to a pad? So we looked at uh, pads with different numbers of wells on them, for example, at these production sites. And we found there was some relationship between the emissions the amount of emissions and the number of wells, or perhaps more importantly, the, the total rate of production of oil or gas from that 
that path. Um, so everything else being equal, if you have more wells, you would expect emissions to go up. And, and we saw this, but it's not a really simple relationship. There are a lot of other factors that influence it as well. Okay, but it is a factor. Yes. All right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, the state public health department is launching an investigation into how oil and gas operations may affect air quality and uh, therefore the, the question of people's health who live around drilling sites. And they are basing that investigation on really a treasure trove of data uh, gathered by Colorado State University. We are speaking to the leader of the team that collected that data, Jeffrey Collett. And uh, Jeffrey, just to that question of, of this being a treasure trove of data, my sense is that this might benefit investigations not just in Colorado, but that this could have informative effects for other states. Do you think that's true? Yes, that's certainly true. There's a lot of interest in in the results from these studies because they are fairly novel, um, especially because we have measurements of emissions and we have information about what was going on on site during the period those emissions were measured. So this is not always available. Sometimes measurements are made without cooperation from the industry um, and there's a lack of information about activities during the, the emissions measurement. Yeah, I want to underscore that point that your research was gathered with cooperation from the industry. That might raise a red flag to some that the data could be somehow compromised. And I think that there was at least some funding f for your work by oil and gas companies in addition to, to other parties. Can you speak to that, please? Sure. So so we did two separate studies, one in Garfield County on the West Slope, right. and that one did involve industry funding. The one here on the Front Range, as you mentioned, was only funded by the state and the city of Fort Collins, but industry participants gave access to make measurements at their sites. Um, you know, as, as Mike mentioned in your quote earlier, it's expensive to do this kind of work. And ultimately, in my view, industry has some responsibility to help assess their potential impacts. But what kind of safeguards were in place so that they didn't influence the data? So what we did was um, the industry provided their portion of the funding for the Garfield County study to Colorado State University in the form of a gift. So there was not a contract. They had no control over the outcome of the study, um, but they were providing funding to go to support the measurements that were necessary to gather this data. Were they able to see the results before the public? They were able to see the results about a week before the report went to the public. Um, that was actually true on the Front Range study as well, that the participating operators were allowed to see the results a short time before they became public. And were there any significant changes made to the findings in that period? No, they didn't change. Okay. What changes do you see operators making right now to cut down on emissions and improve air quality around drill rigs? Well, certainly, you know, Colorado's methane um, emissions uh, regulations have, have contributed to more frequent inspections. And when you're reducing methane leaks, you're also reducing leaks of other compounds like benzene. Let me say that methane is not so much 
a direct breathing or human health concern as it is a, a sort of climactic health concern. It's a greenhouse gas. That's right. It's very important from a, a climate perspective. But most of these compounds are emitted together. Mm -hmm. um, benzene included. Yes, benzene included. The ratio might vary depending upon what stage of the process you're looking at. Um, but that can definitely help. Um, we've also had a lot of interest from operators on the West Slope um, when they saw that flowback, this process, had the biggest emissions, they've started digging into that data more to try and understand how they can reduce emissions, particularly during that, that activity. Just briefly, what's the biggest question you have that you hope public health researchers will be able to answer with your data? I think what needs to happen now and what will happen is to take this emissions data under varying weather conditions and really figure out how someone is exposed to benzene and other compounds who's living at a different distance or a different direction from a facility. And once they have that exposure information, then they can take what's known about the health effects about compounds like benzene and determine really how much risk uh, is involved in, in those exposures. Yeah, and what could that be? Breathing problems? Are these carcinogens? Some are carcinogens like benzene. Um, some things also can cause uh, other types of health problems, including respiratory problems. Thank you for sharing this with us. Happy to do it. Jeffrey Collett heads the Atmospheric Science Department at Colorado State University. He led two studies of air quality near oil and gas operations on the Front Range and the West Slope. And those studies are now being used by the state to measure the health risks, uh, particularly as it relates to air quality of living near oil and gas development. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What's your favorite thing about Earth? What might be an inane question takes on new meaning if you're a 16-year-old boy who's never spent any time here. That is the subject of the new movie, The Space Between Us. Tell me where you're really from. Mars. Sometimes I feel like I'm from a different planet, too. I've been ready for the dark. I want to go to Earth. He's met less than 15 people. He's being denied connection. His physical development is at the perfect place to do it. His heart can't handle our gravity. It's too risky. It's worth it. This interplanetary movie has a decidedly Colorado connection. Denver actor Scott Takeda plays the part of astronaut and physician Dr. Gary Lowe. And to prepare for his role, he got help from real-life space doctor Scott Parazinski of Evergreen, who's been on five shuttle missions, and they're both with us. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. So, Scott Takeda, lay out the plot of this film briefly for us. Well, this is a, a movie about the first uh, child born on Mars. So um, I, I, I play an astronaut doctor who's part of a mission to actually go live on Mars. And, and, and during the process, we discover that one of our astronauts is pregnant. So the child is born on Mars. And then the, 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 um, the film kind of fast forwards and then we, we see him as a teenager and he, he longs to connect and belong 
and uh, he uh, returns to Earth for the very first time as a teenager. Which causes all sorts of physical problems because, of course, his body has grown up in a Martian environment. I understand, though, you didn't know all that background when you got the part. Um, how did this role come about? Yeah, I, I actually never read for the role. I was, um, I was traveling in uh, Italy and Croatia um, during the summer of, uh, I think, 2015. And, um, uh, you know, I came back and I had a voice message on my phone from my agent saying, uh, you've booked this role. And I went, yay, awesome. So I actually arrive on set and then I get the, the script, the full script. And I, I start reading this and reala- realize that I know, knew nothing about what it was to be an astronaut or a astronaut physician. So I started doing some research on astronaut doctors, and I, I, I saw this bio, this Scott Parazinski, who was an astronaut doctor from Colorado, and went, hey, I'll ask him. Indeed you did. And so Scott Parazinski, uh, as we've said, you've been on five space shuttle missions. But how often have you been called on to assist in a Hollywood film? <laughs> it was an extraordinary call. I, I was very impressed uh, hearing from Scott, you know, him doing his due diligence, trying to learn what it would be like to be a physician astronaut, and uh, really some quite uh, perceptive questions about um, what it would be like uh, to uh, um, to give birth in space, let alone to uh, support, uh, you know, development in, in weightlessness as the, the storyline um, took took place. And uh, so it was, it was quite an extraordinary out of the blue call for me as well. And the first time you'd, you'd had a call like that? I'd looked at a couple of screenplays before sort of uh, due diligence, uh, trying to ascertain whether or not things technically made sense. But uh, this is the first time I received a call from an actor uh, preparing for a part. And uh, I, I thought it was really a, an extraordinary, uh, fun experience. Obviously, the really critical scene in this film, uh, or a really critical scene, is when the astronaut who has uh, landed on this Martian colony gives birth. Um, and uh, here, here's that scene. 30 minutes without a heartbeat. John, John, stop saying it. It's gone. It's gone. It ends somewhat uh, darkly, uh, this this giving birth. Um, did you think that this was even a realistic question to begin with, Scott Parazinski? It's something that we really concern ourselves with. You know, the uh, human development process is an extraordinarily complex uh, evolution from two cells merging into to one, then dividing billions and billions of times to create a full human being. And, and we think that this is a gravity-dependent process. And so if some of this is taking place in transit on the way to uh, to Mars, as was portrayed in this movie, and, and then um, you know, the, re- the remainder of the development taking place in a one-third gravity environment, you know, how does this person evolve? Um, is is the person born on Mars uh, even human? You know, is huh. it a, a totally different uh, kind of uh, um, a manifestation of? of our DNA. So there are many unknowns to medical science as to how uh, child children would be born in, uh, in this kind of an environment. So um, lots more science to be done. I'm sure it's going to happen eventually. There are amazing things happening in the commercial spaceflight environment. Um, 
SpaceX and Elon Musk are actually planning to colonize Mars in the in the next uh, two or three decades. So I guess we'll probably have to answer that question sooner than later. Scott Takeda, as we heard in that clip, the, the birth does not end well for the mother, and uh, that means a pretty intense scene. Um, how is it to shoot something like that, um, e- even though it's, it's just a movie? How, how do you get your, your head into that space? It was uh, one of the things that I learned from uh, Scott Prozinski is how close all the astronauts are. Because you know, it's it's not just like ta-da, okay, you guys, uh, you go tomorrow. Uh, there's there's several years of training, um, so um, you know the the actors. Um, we all bonded uh, during our couple weeks of shooting, and so you know we it was uh, it, that was actually the last scene we shot uh, of us together. So it was something that we had talked about a lot um, when we were offset. Um, it was something that we even asked uh, to be able to go in and see the set beforehand, just so we could kind of get ourselves into the into the mental space of what we would have to do, um, because we knew it was a very critical part of telling the story. Yeah, that crew cohesion, yeah, and thus the grief you would feel if you lost a member of the crew. Exactly, mm-hmm. and and this was uh, this was uh, particularly um, for me. It was a strong bonding moment. Uh, with my cast members, uh, you know, sometimes you, when you're on set, you're on set for maybe a couple of days or so. We were on set for two weeks, and uh, we weren't always on set, so we had some time off. So we would hang out, um, you know, in the in the in this town that we were shooting, and it kind of helped us bond. And I think it helped to create um, kind of the bonding that you might see. Uh, with the crew. Yeah, because Scott Parazinski uh, on the sh- the shuttle missions uh, that that you took part in, I know that there's a lot of thought to group dynamics, whether people get along, whether they have the skills to get along. Right. Uh absolutely and uh you know Scott Takeda is absolutely correct. Your crewmates become an extended family. You know, you spend so much time together in rather extreme uh, environments, uh, whether it's, you know, flying an aircraft across the country or in, in a training tank preparing for spacewalks. Um, you know, you, you spend, by and large, more time with your crewmates than you do your own family in the, in the year or two build up to a flight. So, you, you know, all of uh, their, uh, their jokes, uh, <laughs> all of their strengths and all their weaknesses. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's great uh, to see in the movie the uh, the crew cohesion uh, demonstrated there on film as well. And uh, Scott Takeda, there's weightlessness in, in parts of this movie. Um, how did that happen? How did you guys film that? The zero gravity was um, uh, requ- required a lot of training because, uh, you know, you, they have you up in harnesses and, uh, uh, you know, I thought I was uh, in, in fairly decent shape, but... Uh, to uh, to do uh, zero gravity weightlessness in a actually a weighted environment uh, takes quite a bit of effort. There's crew members that are hoisting you up and moving you around, and uh, we trained. Uh, you know, we were on set for about two weeks, and we trained for about two weeks for that. Uh, and Scott Parazinski, um, what was your experience of uh, a weightless environment? It's such a joy to be uh, unencumbered by gravity to be able to fly like. Buzz Lightyear, wherever you want to go, you can uh, do aileron rolls and uh, you know maneuvers uh, befitting uh, an Olympic gymnast uh, huh. you know, with ease. 
it's really a, um, a remarkable environment. Although it, it, there are some challenges, uh, although it's, they're not physical ones, as, as Scott Takeda experienced in, in filming, but um, just keeping track of your belongings. So if you set something down uh, for just a second, uh, likely it's gone forever or maybe two days down the road, it'll be in the cabin air filter. So um, things that you're working on with multiple piece parts have to be dealt with very carefully. You have to either Velcro them to the wall or tether them uh, or they're, they're lost. So there, there is a little bit of additional overhead in working in space, but overall it's just a, um, you know, a real joy to be up there. And one expectation I know about being in space is that you don't really just have one role. Uh, you have to be prepared to pitch in and do all kinds of things. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, what I say is uh, you need to be somewhat of a MacGyver. You need to be able to wear lots of different hats. So if Scott on his crew, although he was designated as the, the flight surgeon or the physician astronaut, he was probably the machinist and IT tech. And, uh, you know, you, everybody has to wear lots of different hats because, um, you've got a, a small crew that has to to manage not just uh, the expected things, but the uh, unexpected contingencies. But it makes the job really fun. Yeah, there's no saying I can't or I won't when when they're <laughs> all hands on deck. All hands on deck. Uh, Scott Takeda, I just want to ask a little bit about um, the experience of doing this film and how it compared to I think it was a much bigger studio production that you were in, which was Gone Girl. Yes. With uh, Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike. How, how did it compare being in the space between us? You know, I, I, they, uh, I've been very fortunate to be in, you know, a lot of different films like Whiskey Tangle, Foxtrot, Gone Girl. Um, I think they're all different. Um, they, they all have kind of a unique life of their own. Obviously, with, uh, with Gone Girl, you have a, a, a big name director david fincher right um you know i was very fortunate to spend two days on set there and when i'm not in front of the camera i'm behind the camera so you i have a production company yeah yeah as a director and so it was kind of uh, an opportunity to go to director's college and just to, just to watch uh fincher work and um you know and, and even ben affleck is a director as well so to watch him work as an actor but also thinking in the back of his mind that he's a director. You know, the, the space between us was um, much more of a film that I felt like I could just kind of lay back and just kind of focus more on the character. It's a deeper character. It's a larger character. Um, and so, um, and, and really start thinking about, uh, the, the, you know, the research of what it would be like and uh, what's the backstory of my character and, you know, did... Dr. Gary Lowe actually go on five space missions, you know, right. Like the real life Scott Parazinski. Yeah. Yes. Um, So it was, it was a chance to kind of dig a little bit deeper. Well, gentlemen, uh, thanks to both of you. I really enjoyed the film. Well, thank you. Thanks. Great to be with you. That's Scott Takeda. He's an actor who lives in Denver. He's featured in the new release, the space between us in theaters now. And Scott Parazinski is an astronaut and physician from Evergreen, Colorado, who was a technical advisor for Takeda on the movie. Finally, a night at the Opera House can last for hours. Well, Denver composer Chapel Kingsland set out to write something for shorter attention spans. The Firebringers is an opera designed for children. It tells three stories in 35 minutes. CPR Classical's Rebecca Romberg has more. 
Jocelyn says the Firebringers features the big gestures of opera. Colorful costumes, dramatic scenes, sweeping music. But it moves more quickly. You can have some glorious singing that lasts, you know, 30 seconds, and kids can be right with you and following it the whole time. That's music from a recent Firebringers rehearsal. Boulder Opera will perform the Firebringers at several shows along the Front Range this month. It tells the story of three fire myths from around the world, like the Greek myth of Prometheus, who steals fire from Zeus. Kingsland says the key is to keep the mood fun. When an eagle torments Prometheus, it's a silly moment, not a scary one. And Kingsland says the audience gets to become a part of the show. It's stuff like, you know, we point at the kids and they have to say, "Ew." Why do they have to say ooh at that moment? Well, the eagle is eating Prometheus's liver every day. That's kind of gross. And so the only way to make that not just like horrifying and something that they'll tell their parents there's this horrible thing they saw is uh, to make it funny instead. That means the liver is a piece of fabric with a frowny face on it that the eagle pulls out of Prometheus's fake wound. I have no regrets. Kingsland says the children's opera isn't necessarily simpler than the operas he's written for grown-ups. The onstage visuals combine with the music to create really powerful storytelling. Something that resonates for a room full of well-behaved adults or an audience full of giggling children. For CPR Classical, I'm Rebecca Romberg. The Firebringers is written for kindergartners through fifth graders and their families. There are performances still to come in Boulder and Lafayette. More at CPRclassical.org. That's our program for today. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org and then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.